In episode nine, I'm joined by change leadership expert and the author of the best-selling book, Valuable Change, Brendan Baker. Stay tuned. Welcome to Well-Led Schools with Adrienne Hornby. On this podcast, we talk about all things staff for being, school culture and leadership. Join me for incredible and rich conversations with a range of experts who will give you tips, tricks and inspiration to best support the well-being of the staff in your school and yourself. I'm your host, Adrienne Hornby, a health and wellbeing consultant and former school leader. I partner with schools across Australia to tailor and embed staff wellbeing action plans aimed at addressing staff burnout and building positive working environments. Schools are all about change. We get direction from the top to change. School leaders introduce new initiatives requiring change. Our staff, teams and classrooms change at least once a year. That being said, when it comes to improving staff wellbeing and fostering a positive culture, our school inevitably has to change in order to grow and evolve. But change isn't as simple as a decision. It's a process which requires a plan, strong leadership, and of course, buy-in from our people. Well, how do we actually achieve this? Today, I welcome Brendan Baker. Brendan is a leading expert in getting what you want from your projects. He has led and guided over $10 billion in transformative projects and programs across many types of change. He is the author of the best-selling book, Valuable Change, and works closely with what he calls change leaders across multiple organizations. In this episode, we'll be chatting all about what it really takes to create meaningful change at work and how to make sure the changes you're implementing aren't surface level and how simple mindset shifts like how we define success can lead us towards the changes in culture that we seek. Without further ado, though, let's get into it. This episode is brought to you by our signature Well-Led Schools Partnerships, a 12-month program that brings leaders and staff together to create a shared vision for their school and empowers them to create an action plan that leads to needle-moving changes in school culture and morale. Doors to our partnerships open only once per term. Stay updated on program openings and sign up for the waitlist at adriannehornby.com.au forward slash school hyphen partnerships. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Brendan. I'm so excited to have you on. We've been chatting all uh, all about this before I hit record to chat about change and change leadership. I've been very inspired reading your book again on the plane ride up to our new house. So thank you. Oh, thank you for having me on. <laughs> all right. So I'm just going to start with the first question that I ask everybody who's on the show with me, and that's what's one thing you like to do to look after or support your own health and well-being? Yes, yeah, so I've got a short and a longer answer to this, uh, or mildly longer. The short answer is I like to lift up 
heavy things uh, and then put them back down on the ground and then lift them up again and put them back down on the ground. I, I tend to like to do a bit of that uh, and have a coach that helps me do it a little bit better. Um, but the, the slightly longer answer to it is um, I don't subscribe to the idea of work-life balance. Um, for me, it's all life. Mm. It's all life. And so what that means is that I could be midway through a, a, a gym session and then I could take a sales call or a client call and then get back into my gym session. Or it could be, you know, I, I work late one night and then I sleep in the next morning or, or whatnot. It's it's all life, right? Like family is hard and easy and work is hard and easy and, you know, friends and social and fitness, it's all hard and easy. It, it's so view it as life and it just starts taking the pressure off and yeah. starts building in this this nice flexibility. Well, at least yeah. that's my approach. I was thinking that fluidity there so you don't have that rigidity around, you know, this is set times for this. And, I mean, that works for some people, but I agree with you. I think when you get to the point where you can be fluid and you can appreciate and anchor to the moments that, you know, are your downtime or your rest time or your well-being time, then then that you're right, it all becomes one in the same in, in the big thing that's called life. Yeah. Yeah, I really, and, and when you were talking about picking up and putting down heavy things, you should have come and helped me move, Brendan. <laughs> Just relocated to the Gold Coast. We definitely needed help. <laughs> oh, yes. I would have popped over to the beach. It would have been nice. I, should have I done know, that. should have. All right, thanks so much for that. So I'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit about who you are, uh, what you do, and your journey to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So I'm Brendan and um, what I do. So I, I help leaders actually get what they want, actually get what they want from their change. Uh, that, that's essentially the, the high level. Um, but what that actually means is um, most projects, most change, most programs, most even portfolios of projects, most of them focus on delivery, getting stuff done. Um, but quite often when you do that, you lose that bigger picture. You lose that sense of, well, why in the world are we actually doing this? And what's the meaningful difference that we're looking to create here and ultimately using that to drive decision-making. Uh, and so, so that's the space that I play in and, and I, I call that change leadership because it's not change management, it's not project management, it's not value or risk or anything else. That's change leadership. That's connecting the strategic contextual insight through to actually what you want and making things meaningfully different. Mm, that's so, our job as leaders, isn't it? That's exactly <laughs> to it. lead the change, yes. That's exactly it. Uh, and so how I ended up here, um, so I guess like I, I grew up in Western Sydney and I, and I was a bit of a weird, bit of a weird child um, <laughs> in that um, if you ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I, and, and you know, when I'm probably nine, like if you came up to nine-year-old Brendan and said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would have answered entrepreneur. I couldn't pronounce the word. I just <laughs> absolutely like just stumble through it. But uh, that was the answer. And um, it was because my parents had handed me a copy of uh, Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad um, when I was nine um so i don't know if that's some conditioning or something there what? but <laughs> they were setting you up uh, that's great oh absolutely but i mean they obviously i had i had an interest in this general direction um and so you know went, went through school um and then went straight into uni and, and studied um, business management and, and business leadership in at uni and ultimately had this lovely naivety uh about me in that 
I looked at, you know, management and I looked at all of these things and I went, I don't want to do the same thing over and over again. The, the idea of monotony really scared me. And so I was like, I need to do something with variety. And so I fell into project management. You should have become a teacher. <laughs> There's no monotony there. Yes. No, you're not wrong. And well, that's the thing. It's naivety because the more you, the vast majority of careers are continuous improvement and, and, yeah. and you know, lack of monotony and everything else. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was very fearful of it. So uh, fell into project management and, and so got picked up in, um, in a graduate program by a government department and they put me in their project management office and they said, okay, you're going to teach project managers and help improve things. And I went, well, how am I meant to do that? I've never delivered a project myself. Um, so then I started asking, give me a project. Please give me a project. Please give me a project. Um, and they eventually relented and did. And that was essentially the start of it. And it was a small, tiny process improvement type project. It was me and an IT guy and um, that was essentially it. Um, and yet I made every mistake under the sun on it. We got the problem. <laughs> we, we, we disappeared into a black box for three months, came back, presented our wonderful solution. Look at, look at what we've done. We did it. And um, the sponsor was very patient. The executive was very, the executive was very patient and said, nope, that's not the solution. Go and try again. And this time talk to people. Um, and so that was kind of the beginning of uh, learning what the hell I was doing. And um, so when I did it and did manage to deliver successfully the second time and then asked for another project and did that again and again for a little while. And, and essentially the projects got bigger and larger and I learned more and my scars and my stripes both grew in respect. Um, and it got to the point where I was looking after portfolios uh, up in the billions of dollars um, and consulting into uh, projects that are in hundred, hundreds of millions of dollars and leading, you know, million dollars, several million dollar projects. Um, that essentially quite quickly became the, the space I was playing in. It was restructures. It was transformations. It was um, big policy rollouts. It was massive programs. It was, it was a bunch of things. And I then consulted for a little while under other people's banners. And then I um, had a bit of a, uh, I guess, almost a quarter life crisis. I had, I had a had a moment where I sat back and went, what are we doing? I'm seeing the same patterns over and over again, that there's a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of pain, a lot of difficulty. And yet there wasn't a whole lot of meaningful change. And for me, it, it took a little while, but I started to see that there were patterns and the patterns are essentially, it was this focus on blinkers on, let's just get stuff done as opposed to actually focusing on what matters. And so that was the catalyst for the, the book, Valuable Change. And that was the catalyst for now. I founded the Valuable Change Co. And so that's what I do. It's work with change leaders to focus on what matters. And I advise companies and I, you know, or I train people in it and I, and I have a lot of advisory type relationships as well, but it's very much, um, helping shift the focus to, um, make a meaningful difference. Mm. I love that whole idea of go away and talk to people. 
<laughs> that is the one thing that I even find when working with schools is that the Any Change Initiative, particularly when I'm thinking in terms of well-being, are made behind the closed doors of a leadership meeting and don't actually involve the people themselves so that we can actually get an, a quantifiable idea of what's happening in our setting and what needs to be done and what staff feel would be valuable themselves because oftentimes our people have all of the answers. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, yeah. you can only see so much, right? They're, they're the ones living and breathing it. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Talk yeah. to people. <laughs> yeah, the other the other thing that I liked as part of your story was that whole idea of you um, beginning to appreciate and learn from what what we see as failures in the beginning, but are really just lessons along the way. And this is really hard. Off, I see a lot of the time for leaders and even staff to try something and it not work, and then you know, they, that's it, that's the end of the road for them or that's the deterrent or the thing that means that they won't return and try again. And I love how in your story that was the catalyst for you being and doing better. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, I mean, it's one of those funny things where, I mean, I don't know if it's just the the, the culture that we live in or if, it, like, if it's the workplace culture or if it's something else, maybe we're all secretly perfectionists. Um, but <laughs> we... Uh, you're right. We, we we tend to grow up with this fear of failure, uh, and, and that tends to be embedded within us. Um, and I mean, I I have a depending on what we cover throughout this discussion, we'll I'll, we'll dive into a little bit more in terms of, well, how in the world do we actually normalize uh, failure, and how do we how do we do that, and what does that give us? Uh, because ultimately, that's a key part of um, that's a key part of dealing with and being able to respond to and, and um, change. And, and embracing change. Yeah, and I mean, any good inquiry into whatever that we're doing requires that level of curiosity and checking back in and adaptation. But, yeah, as we were saying before, that perfectionist in many of us, and, you know, I'm not immune from that either, can stop us there and it means that we start something again. And you probably see this a lot in your work is that we, we begin with an idea and everybody gets going on it. When it doesn't work, we pivot to something else. And in schools that happens all the time and it's and that's quite, you know, it's from the top down. Uh, but it, it's I'm sure you'll talk, it's all around, you know, adjusting how we do it uh, and, you know, staying on course and, and looking to find that solution and something that works at the end of the day. The other thing I really liked you talked about was, um, you know, that meaningful change and how you were saying putting the blinkers on. And, you know, that's so true I, and, and listeners in education will understand that as well, is that we have grand plans in our annual strategic plans for school or in, you know, our five-year or five three to five year strategic plans. And what I often see is that there are lots of actions on the report at the end, but not many results. And so <laughs> I'm hoping today that you'll step our listeners through how we can take those annual action plan or strategic plan reports and stop having so many actions and have more outcomes that are backed up by data as well. Absolutely. We, we can absolutely do that. And, um, I mean, that that's probably... I mean, the answer to that is essentially we we need to be taking the blinkers off and, mm -hmm. and it's ultimately around how we define success. Mm -hmm. Because when you define success as uh, we did a lot of things, mm -hmm. then that's what you're going to focus on. You're going to have these big task lists or action plans and you go tick, 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 tick. Oh, look at all of the things that we did. But 
what an arrogant position that is to say that you knew exactly all of the things to do up front to actually make a change, mm. right? And, and so ultimately you need to shift the way you define success. Mm-hmm. And, and that's got to do with driving, basically building yourself accountability against the outcome, accountability against what or why you're doing this and how you're going to prove the why as mm-hmm. opposed to the doing of the what. And there is a nice thing that comes with that in that when you focus on the why, when you focused on proving the why, then the question that naturally comes out of that is, well, what's the least we can do to create that metric shift that we're after, that outcome shift that we're after? What's the least we can do? Mm-hmm. And when you ask that question, you go, oh, well, we've only got to do four things. Well, let's just go do them. Let's create that shift and we're done. And so you end up heavily reducing the amount of work that you do as opposed to the way most of us do it, which is we come up with an idea and we go, all right, we've got a bit of a problem. Here's the solution to the problem. All right, we've got to do 200 things to get that solution in. Let's just go and get that done. And then you go tick, 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 and you get it all done. And you go, okay, we succeeded. But did you really? Yeah, you didn't check back in. <laughs> That's exactly it. And, yeah. and you didn't check back in frequently throughout. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it is about changing how you think about success. Mm. And it's changing even when you, I mean, a lot of projects tend to have governance mechanisms, right? Like project reporting or, or something similar or program reporting. And most of that focuses on are you on time? Are you to budget? Uh, and what what is going wrong, essentially? That's typically what they focus on, um, cost, uh, time, and issues. And um, none of those are true measures of success. They're parameters, but they're not true measures measures of success. When When better questions would be, is this still a viable solution? Like, is this still viable? Um, or has the context changed? Mm-hmm. And, a, and a secondary question would be, and what are the early indicators starting to say? Are we on track or do we need to pivot? pivot? That's the discussion we should be having when we're governing these things. And then we say, okay, well, how, and how are we progressing? Mm-hmm. And, you know, are there any threats to our progress? That's how you govern with value at your core. Yeah, I like that. And, and, you know, this was going to be one of my early questions because you do talk about those three questions early on in your book, Valuable Change, which um, I all our listeners need to get a copy of because it's a really great resource and tool to have. But, yeah, you ask those questions, why are we changing, how will we know when we're successful and be able to prove it, and um, the what are we doing. And, and, you know, many schools nowadays are taking a new approach to supporting staff well-being, and I love those questions that you've just highlighted is they help to frame the communication and the co-creation of our overall vision. And that's a core element of the work that I do with schools, but I know it features really quite strongly in, in the early parts of your books. So how can we how can we use those guiding questions to ensure our change initiatives actually improve school culture and staff well-being and make sure that it isn't surface level? Yeah. So um, again, the the how do, how do we avoid it from being surface level? That's that's very much um, again. It's about that accountability to real success. Mm. It's um, and I mean, there's a nice way to think about it. Like if I turned up to your school and said, "Prove to me you were successful here," and you gave me a list of programs delivered, or you gave me some calendar invites for some lunch and learns, or you gave me something like that, um, I would say, "Great! How do we know we were successful?" Mm. 
right? Uh, because those are delivery metrics. Mm. They're just proof of work, yeah. not proof of success. Mm-hmm. And and so instead, you should be starting with the why. So question for you, Adrian. What, what are school leaders typically looking for when they're engaging you or, or, kick, or rather kicking off a wellbeing program? Like well, why think, are they doing that? Well, I think oftentimes they're saying that their staff are beginning to be burnt out. Things, you know, collaboration is less likely. Uh, staff absenteeism is increasing. Um, it, there's a number of different reasons people are either looking to engage someone like me for performance in terms of school performance and others it's more emotional. It's to support their staff because they see that things are beginning to waver. Yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, so essentially, I mean, I talk about those three questions of why are we doing this, how will we prove success, and then what exactly are we doing? But there is a almost a, a, a question prior to those, which is what are the factors? What's the context? Like what are the factors leading to actually this discussion, leading to the why? What's the context we're operating in? And so it sounds like in this case, like a wellbeing program, the context would often be where we're starting to see burnout rates drop. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, burnout rates increase or um, absenteeism probably uh, increase, and we're starting to see these other factors at play that are indicating, well, um, there is beginning to be issues around burnout, fatigue, perhaps staffing, maybe there's insufficient staffing because of it, um, and pulling that thread. And then that tends to give you the why. Hmm. And then once you have that why, you then say, well, how are we going to prove it? And so then the metrics fall out of that. And that's what you should be holding yourself accountable to. And that's what you should be using to make decisions on. And so, I mean, we've already listed off like absenteeism would be one. If you go, okay, well, that's how we're going to start to measure success. Um, are, are there any others that you would be suggesting in this wellbeing space? Well, definitely it's staff engagement levels. All So engagement, workplace satisfaction, burnout staff, um, burnout of yep. staff, stress, mental health, those all impact our student learning outcomes. Um, that's been proven in the data. But, yeah, what you're saying fits perfectly into what I support schools to do in step one of my six-step model, which is to scan the school and actually pinpoint what's happening and taking that diagnostic approach so that you can actually identify, well, you know, what do we need to do and why do we need to do it? Um, and from there, you, I guess you can use that data set that you've got to be able to set your goals and your targets in terms of not, as you said, all of the all of the initiatives and support options and things that you're doing, but how are you actually going to pull down your burnout rates, pull down your staff dissatisfaction rates, um, increase staff engagement uh, and, and reports that staff would recommend their school as another place to work to others. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's exactly it. And, and it's it's that it's a mindset flip essentially, um, where, where you're essentially going, well, what are we seeing? Uh, as you said, you know that diagnostic, diagnostic approach would work really well. And then it's okay. Well, what does success look like? And, and it's a uh, maybe and limit yourself to no more than two or three things. Don't go anything more than three. If you are measuring success in more than three things, then you are confused and busy. And two, you need to go have another second look. Essentially. Um, get yourself the only the only time i let projects have anything more than three success measures are when they are literally in the 50 plus million dollar category or 100 plus million dollar category and you go okay we are i understand why you have seven things that you're measuring success on there because you're doing so damn much Mm -hmm. um and even then i tend to challenge it and try to get it down to five or four yeah Um, like that don't overcomplicate it if you Mm -hmm. can pick one measure and maybe there's a secondary measure, but typically try to pick one. Mm. And you go, okay, 
we're going to increase staff engagement and then go and figure out what it is at the moment, however you want to measure that, and then set yourself some targets and then ask, what's the least we need to do to hit those targets? That gives you the what. Mm. And it's doing it in that order, starting with the proof of success first makes a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. And when I'm working with schools, when we're developing their wellbeing action plan, it's guided first by the vision, but um, alongside that, it's one to three priority areas. As I say, there is no point scattering your efforts and becoming, you know, a jack of all trades, but a master of none. Uh, if you actually want to get somewhere, you really need to narrow your focuses. And that's the same for, for any strategic direction at a curriculum level in schools too. If you're trying to do a thousand and one different things across the school, staff just get confused and yeah. um, and anxious and frustrated and, and all of the things that, that really impact our cultural change. All right, so um, we've talked a little bit about those those early questions to ask, but because you know improving staff wellbeing and school culture uh, is really important in schools because this goes on to influence the learning of our students. Um, it's really important that schools are getting change right, uh, particularly when it comes to supporting their staff. So, how would you best sum up the key ingredients to successful change that are also going to be supportive of staff wellbeing outside of those initial questions to to frame to frame your journey? Yeah, so um, to me, a, a successful change or a valuable change rather um, is one that is contextually connected, value-centered and, and empathy embedded. And so I'll, I'll elaborate on each of those a little bit. So contextually connected is um, essentially it's assuming that we are not operating in a vacuum. It's knowing that the context that we're operating in is moving alongside us and so we don't know all the answers up front. Um, and so we are continuously verifying, is this still the right project? Is this still the right change for now? Uh, and, and being really, really clear on what are the key elements in the environment that if they change, we no longer need to do this. And if when you're clear of that, you're, connect you're contextually connected and you can, uh, I mean, it makes it easier to kill off a project if you need to, which mm -hmm. is one of the hardest decisions that any change leader will make. When you're halfway down the road and you go, well, this isn't making sense anymore, but we've already sunk, you know, yeah. 500,000 into this. What do we do? Um, it's about the, is the why still valid? So that's the first piece, contextually connected. And the second being value-centered. And we've already talked a little bit in terms of how do we incorporate that. Um, but again, it's essentially governing with success front of mind uh, and making sure that we see the value of what we're doing as the being in the end goal, not the project itself as being the end goal. Um, then the final piece is it's empathy embedded. And it's so easy to forget when we're leading change that others aren't necessarily as sold on the change as we are. And they value different things that we do and when they have different perspectives than we do. And what they find painful, we may not. And what we might find easy, they might find painful. Right? Um, and so that available change is one that keeps empathy front of mind. And in fact, there's a really nice, um, there's a really nice mental tool that I use in this empathy space. And it's 
it's probably the stickiest tool that I have in terms of when I, I teach a whole people, a whole bunch of things. And this is the one that uh, my wife uses. This is the one that um, 80% of my clients go, yep, yep, that's the one that's if I do nothing else, this is the one that's stuck with me forever. Um, and I call it the value equation. And the value equation is really quite simple. It's reward minus pain equals decision. And um, that's quick, that's easy, that's simple, but it's the understanding of what actually underpins it that's really useful here. Because the way that I arrived at that is, um, actually, you're right if I dive into a little bit of the science underneath it? Yeah, please. So essentially there were these behavioural researchers uh, that were over in um, Belgium, I believe, and they were looking at the human response to pain. And what intrigued me about that was um, I am well aware that change is inherently painful. Um, I'm a little bit of a freak in that place where I tend to really enjoy change, hence I work in it and and whatnot. But um, for the vast majority of people, change is inherently painful. And so I was was diving into what's the research on pain. And I found this study. And essentially what these researchers did is they – they had been looking at human response to pain and and the vast majority of literature up to that point had said that um, humans do things to avoid pain. Uh, I mean, no surprises there, right? We we don't like being in pain. Um, But these researchers challenged that notion. They said, no, we don't think that's the full picture here. Uh, And so what they did, they they ran this experiment and they got two groups of students, um, uh, university students, college students, and the first group, and we'll call them the poor souls. The first group, they attached them to a electroshock machine and they um, put a screen in front of them. And that screen had some really simple number and letter based questions on it. Things like, you know, one plus three equals four, those types of things. And every time they got an answer correct, they got an electric shock. They got zapped. Any guesses as to how many questions, or roughly how many questions um, each of these uh, these poor souls got done? Oh, God. Well, I, I'm thinking in my head that because they were getting it right, there was reward, but there was also the pain, so they kept going? They didn't, no. So no. this first group. Oh, well, there you go. Maybe you and I have a similar mindset when it comes. Maybe. <laughs> I tried to Masochistic. go against the grain. I thought you were going to catch me out there. <laughs> no, no, no. There's there's nothing too tricky on this one. It's it's literally they got the answers right and they got punished for it. Uh, they got the answers right, they got zapped. And this group, um, they didn't complete all that many of these questions. They started just, they just sat out the time. After figuring out what was happening, they just went, no, bugger that, not going to bother. Um, And so that was the first group. And that was essentially the control group. That was looking at this from the point of view of, yes, humans don't like being in pain. See, there's the proof. Um, But then they had the second group, and we'll call these this group the well-remunerated poor souls. So they attached this group to the same machine, asked them the same questions, except they made a couple of changes. Um, first of all, they added a point counter to the screen. And so every time they got something right, yes, they got zapped, but they also got a point. Mm-hmm. And more for every point they got, they got more money at the end of the experiment. 
Okay. And so there was now a direct uh, reward attached to getting things right. And and so I guess any guesses as to which group completed more questions? Obviously the second group. <laughs> that's exactly it, right? You, yeah. I mean, and that's, that's nice and obvious. And we all think about money as a motivator. But what, what's really interesting about this research is I actually think the researchers missed something. Mm. Um, and that was they had a point counter. Yeah, and so they turned it into that, a game. Yeah, that sense of accomplishment. And, yeah, and that's the exactly it. it. Yeah, that was it. Was it was the sense of accomplishment, uh, and and they turned it into a game. And so they started to get the dopamine mm. elements firing, which is why you know mobile games and everything is so damn addictive, mm. um, because it's all gamified. And yeah. so they've gamified this zapping question process. And there is, and the second element here is, um, these were university students. There is, there is no way in the world these students were not coming out of that experiment and comparing scores and seeing who was tougher or braver or, you know, faster. There, there was no way. They were absolutely walking out of that saying, oh, yeah, I got, I got 13. What about you? I got 15. Oh, look at that. Right. And so there was this competition element in there as well. And so what, what ended up happening is when if you look at it from a value equation point of view, which is reward minus pain equals decision, the first group had a whole lot of pain, very, very little reward. It was some some very, very small intrinsic reward around I got the question correct, which they got a whole heap of pain for. And so the decision was to not go any further. But the second group, they had um, more money as a reward. They had the dopamine hit that gamification gives you and they had the social competition elements in there. So they had three different factors of reward with the same level of pain, this zapping. Um, and so their decision was to complete far more of the, the questions. And so that's, it's an equation. You start, and w- when you look at it like that, you go, okay, well, how do I maximize the reward and minimize the pain for the groups that are, I'm looking for them to decide to do something differently? Mm-hmm. And that's really an empathy tool. Mm-hmm. It's thinking about it from their point of view. Why in the world would anyone want to do this? And why does this suck for them? Mm-hmm. And then answering those questions and then asking yourself, well, how do I make them want this more? And how do I make this suck less for them? And then trying to drive <laughs> the decision you want. It's, it's that simple. Yeah. And I love that. And the, the added complexity here with those working in education is that in many organizations, we can put in place financial incentives and rewards or, or, or thing, um, or even initiatives and programs, uh, you know, outside of that. And I'm sure you might be able to speak to those, but what, what, what I start to think about is, you know, those teaching staff who go, you know, at the moment, it's such a hard slog in schools. And for what? And this is something that I'll work with leaders in is around, it's helping your staff to recognize their accomplishment. It's for you to recognize their accomplishment for them and to model and scaffold that through the provision of feedback and that recognition and and sharing that value. The other thing that it comes back to, and I and you've talked you talked about it a lot in the book, and we've we've covered off on it already, is around 
uh, working together to co-create that vision and sense of purpose because we all get into education because it's very it's a very purpose-driven profession. But when things get inherently super stressful, like what you're talking about, and hard and painful and we're exhausted, we lose that. And so it's our job as leaders to continue to put that at the forefront and to re- help our staff to remember why they're there, why we're doing it in the first place, and ultimately bringing it back to the kids. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. And yeah. and what you're essentially doing is is restacking that reward element there. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. Yeah. Totally are, there, are there any other, you know, and quickly, any other strategies that schools who can't adopt financial rewards could put in place as incentives to be able to um, increase the reward in our enabled to in sorry, in order to be able to balance out that pain element? Anything that I didn't mention? Yeah, so um so, I mean, I've got a number of government clients and the government have the same pro, um, the same restriction. I'm not going to yeah. say it's a problem, but but it's the same restriction. Yeah. They, they can't offer bonuses. They can't offer remuneration. Um, and so you need to look at alternatives. Um, mm. Things like gamification can be really, really powerful. Um, adding points and point tally boards, those kinds of things. If you can build that, then that can be really powerful. Um, other things like um, if, if someone is... Uh, ambitious and seeking recognition, then you can offer avenues for recognition, yeah. right? Uh, but, but that doesn't appeal to everyone. And that's the interesting mm. thing about empathy is that not everyone is driven by the same things, um, but recognition can be really nice, like, you know, public recognition um, as can gamification. But there can be other elements uh, like, um, I mean, I'm not sure how flexible the time is, but you could offer... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, maybe, look, uh, I should probably context this with um, my mother was an assistant principal and my wife uh, is an ex-teacher. So I do oh, understand a little it. bit of the, I do get it. Um, so, but, but I, a few government clients do actually block out time for team events or things as a, as a reward, as a, as a feedback loop there, as a positive loop. Um, and then there's... Um, and then essentially you're, and there's a couple others, but they're slipping from me at the moment. But then the other part of this is, well, how do we re- reduce the pain? Mm. And that's an equally valid discussion. Mm. And so a lot of people tend to think about, well, how do I make this more rewarding? And you go, okay, but how do I make this less painful? Yeah. How do I make this easier and smoother and and ultimately just we can get there, right? Yeah, it's so important and that's that's a key element of workplace wellbeing is that it's not just bringing in somebody to teach mindfulness. It's around addressing the key stresses and doing what we can to reduce the risk factor for them. So that I love that idea that you've just suggested there. It's around, yes, what are the incentives and the rewards we can have, but how are we also reducing those key stresses? That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I um the other thing that popped up then was goal setting and review. Like that again, that doesn't work for everybody, but both individually and at a team level, it's a great way to focus our efforts and then of course revisit and recognize those accomplishments in our people as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I mean the, the other one that's just popped into mind, uh, which is nice when you you know you think on the spot, um, is if you can, is this sense of community. Uh, and, and it's this sense of team and belonging, right? Uh, I mean, it's something that Brene Brown talks about, but it's, but ultimately that's a reward. We really like feeling part of something, especially something bigger than us, right? And, and, and we like feeling we have allies towards that. And so it doesn't always have to be an individual style reward um, if you can focus on building up 
a really strong team culture, then that will be individually rewarding as well. Uh, and then there's some other elements in there like um, they'll then there'll be this sense of social obligation uh, and a few other elements like that. They want to, they don't want to be left out. Um, and the other thing with this reward side is that it's not all carrots. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you hear about the carrot and the stick. Uh, we're talking about carrots right now. Um, sticks are also rewards or avoidance of sticks are also rewards <laughs> on this value equation, right? Like they, you can be, um, you know, penalties and, um, you know, those types of things in that space as well, because sometimes you just have to drive a change through mm-hmm. and sometimes it has to happen, right? And I'm yeah. not great from a well-being point of view, but I'm looking at it from a change leadership point of view. Um, how do you drive an outcome through? You need to be aware of all of the tools you have in that space. Yeah, and having those difficult conversations in order to be able to manage that is a is a really key component. And we can set those gentle expectations and standards with our vision at the start and, and what we can expect from one another and how to hold one another to account. And then those harder conversations aren't such a shock to our people when we've already prefaced how we're, you know, the direction that we're going, how the change will look at the end of the day. And if they're getting in the way of that or, you know, either knowingly or unknowingly being able to have those those conversations is much easier if we've already sort of laid the ground rules, so to say. Very much so. so. And especially if and and especially if you've already got 80% of the people there. Because then there is this social obligation of you don't want to get left behind, do you? Uh, And and that that is a nice little kick up the butt. Yeah, and that element of community too, as you were thinking, you don't want to be left behind. If we are able to form strong collaborative communities, our staff don't want to let one another down either in that. So they're doing it for their community or for their group, hopefully never to the detriment of their own well-being. But that's really important to have that loyalty and that trust amongst our teams as well. Yep, spot on. Yeah. Now, I was really drawn to a section of your book that covers something called the learning habit. So here you talk through three levels of learning, so being ignorant, intelligent, and wise. And I particularly resonate with your discussions around what it means to be wise, and we were chatting about this before we hit record. Now, I wanted to cover this because when it comes to professional learning, particularly on our, um, you know, on our journey to change in any school, no matter what we're focusing on, whether it's well-being and culture or whether it's a curriculum area, or, you know, um, we're looking at putting in place a new behaviour management system, whatever it might be, we're all going to be engaging in learning. But how do we engage in learning in a way that sticks, um, that we actually learn from <laughs> and grow, that isn't just something that we sit through? We want it to actually make it sync. So can you explain these levels to the listeners and why wisdom really is the key to valuable change? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely can. Um, and in fact, what I might start with before I dive into the levels, um, and the nice thing about the levels is they're not that, they're not that complex. They're rather simple. But um, I want to talk a little bit around why learning is really important and active learning, like mm-hmm. actively putting aside time for it, actively thinking about it, baking, baking things into your plan. Um, to do this kind of learning and it's because you have an opportunity for exponential style growth and i mean if you think about like if you think about learning as a resource like as just as a thing if i shared a dollar with you then i would be down a dollar you would be up a dollar it would be a net neutral position from an organizational point of view um and i'd be down and you'd be up right uh, if I share a, a team member with you, I'm down a team member, you're up a team member, it's a net neutral again from an organizational point of view. 
But if I share a lesson with you, then I don't lose that lesson. I retain that lesson. I, I retain the learning and the knowledge and everything that comes with it. But you also gain, as a minimum, a snippet or a sense of, of that, what that lesson is. And so it's a net positive from an organizational point of view. And then that, let's say you then shared that with another person or another two people, and it very, very quickly can create exponential style learning. And that's the kind of stuff that starts to shift cultures, which is really, really powerful and really nice. And so it's worthwhile thinking about where you are on these learning steps. And so the bottom layer here is ignorant. And I'm not calling any of your listeners here ignorant. And no way in the world am I doing that. Um, but ignorant is essentially a, a learning level where it's you're not putting any active effort into learning from your experiences. Like you're not actually planning or putting time aside from this. Um, so in other words, you don't know what you're learning and you don't know what you're going to do with it. Um, is, and it, it's how the vast majority of us operate. We get in, get stuff done, tick the box, hell yeah, we celebrate and we move on. Um, but we only learn what we've just subconsciously baked through it. And then if we leave the organization, well, then they lose that learning and we bring it to whoever we go to next. And so we're still creating a, that ignorant level is that net neutral or even a net loss for an organization that, um, because they're sitting there. The next level up is intelligent. Now, an intelligent organization is one that knows the theory in terms of trying to capture these lessons after projects or, you know, on a regular basis. And so one of the major call signs of an intelligent organization is one that where you go into their digital files or you open up the physical files if you still have those and you see reports and reports of these were the lessons we learned on this and this is what we learned on this. So maybe there's end project reports or end program reports and in it there is these are the lessons we learned. And they're sitting there in a digital or physical file gathering dust, never touched again. <laughs> right? and, so, and so an intelligent organisation is one that has an abundance of knowledge but isn't actively using it. Yeah, they're engaging in reflective practice, but that's about all they're doing is the action. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. And so the key difference between intelligent and wise is that a wise organisation knows that a lesson logged isn't a lesson learned. Lessons and learning requires action. I mean, um, your listeners will probably know way more about learning than I do, right? Um, but ultimately it's this action element. And so a wise organization is one that has active reflection, then captures that and then implements the learnings mm -hmm. and, and pushes that through. And, and it's the kind of thing where you don't want to have these big long tables of at the end of the project, oh, we, you know, we learned 25 things and then it sits in a file. What that looks like is you're two weeks into the project and you say, what are we learning so far? You pick one thing and you go, and you say to yourself, well, we're going to, um, we're going to do that better next week. We're going to do that better next fortnight. And so then you're actively working on learning it while you're doing it. Mm. Right. And that's a wise organization because they are actively learning. They're actively reflecting, they're capturing it for future use, but they are also then trying to learn from it. Mm. And, and the ultimate uh, end goal here is that they can sit back in a fortnight or in a month's time and say, we've proved that we've learned that lesson because we didn't repeat the same mistake again. Like the example that I gave at the very beginning of our chat, where I said I disappeared into a black box and came back out three months later. 
uh, and with a solution, but it wasn't a very good one. And I got told to go talk to people. Um, that was a lesson. Mm. That was a learning. And the proof that I learned that was I didn't go and repeat the lesson. I didn't go and repeat the mistake. Yeah. Right. And so that's a wise organization. You're actively reflecting. You're capturing that, but not too many. You're keeping it really focused, really refined. And then ultimately you're focused on actually implementing the learning. Yeah. And and the big thing that stands out to me while you're talking is, of course, our leaders being able to do this themselves if they're expecting that of their staff and really owning the process, like the good, the bad and the ugly, because there's nothing more frustrating to staff than when we reflect on something and we all talk about it and then absolutely nothing changes and nothing is done ever again. That's probably one of the quickest ways to derail a culture. And we'll be talking soon about that the momentum path and what that looks like. But it almost steps people back a couple of levels because they might be quite hopeful that things are going to change. And then when nothing actually uh, eventuates or it's never revisited again, they slip right back into despair or being really fearful again. So, And it's probably hard to bring yourself back from, or harder to bring yourself back from that and gain that trust again. So it's so important that as you're engaging in any change process, but I'm going to think here particularly around well-being and culture is that, yes, you continue to engage in that reflective practice, but also communicate where you're up to with your staff. And if you've taken a pause because you're focusing attention elsewhere, remaining transparent that whole time. Absolutely. I mean, and there's a really nice way to, I mean, I tend to look at learning. I'm a big fan of collaborative learning yeah, uh, and, and using storytelling in the learning process using storytelling in the learning process as well in terms of um, if you ask someone what went well or what didn't go well, uh, you're going to get some pretty dry answers uh, and it's the questions that everyone tends to ask. But if you say, hey, tell me the story of what happened over the last fortnight for you, people more naturally do it Mm -hmm. because you're not asking for lessons. You're not asking for any kind of analytical thinking there you're asking them to tell the story of their experience you know that one of the key plot points and then you ask another person and you ask another one and let's say you've got a team of five you could end up with five different stories and if you layer those stories on top of each other you'll start to see the trends and then you go okay well this is this is the one or two lessons that our team need to focus on now because we're all experiencing this collectively mm-hmm. and then it's as simple as writing the lesson the, the lesson on the Maybe, I don't know if you have like a virtual team board or if it's all in, if you're all in house and you've got a whiteboard in your, in your staff room, um, write it on the staff room whiteboard and you go, this is the spot for the fortnightly lesson. You go, this is our lesson. This is our focus. And you bring it back up in your team meetings and you or if you're having stand-ups or whatever it is, the structure is, you keep that front of mind. Um, and that starts to really quickly shape behavior because it's only one thing. It's only one thing to focus on and you're slowly gaining 1% at a time. Yeah. No, I love that idea. And um, I was talking to Brendan before we hit record around, I sat next to a very interesting man uh, on the plane on the way over. It was all very fortuitous, particularly uh, in the lead up to this chat with Brendan. And he talked a lot around moving from awareness, which I guess is your element of um, intelligent to the sage. And he talked about how you become a sage by learning about many different things taking the time to think about them and then sharing and acting upon your knowledge with others. And that is the way that we achieve that valuable change in the end. And I thought, ah, that, what an amazing time to have that conversation with a man in the lead up to today. <laughs> it was a good reminder. <laughs> 
Oh, your work also talks a lot about leveraging the power of our people. And in my work, I advocate that schools put people first, then pedagogy. Um, Brendan, why is it important to utilise and support our people? Yeah, uh, so I've got a fairly short answer here. Uh, essentially, without people, there's no school, there's no business, there's no organisation. Without people, there's, there is no, there is none of this, right? Um, or at least at the moment, maybe. maybe no, I don't say future. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd be out yeah, of a job. You know, well, we all would. We can all, we can all be lying on the beach in the Gold Coast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, AI do our jobs for us. Um, but but at the moment, without people, there's no school, there's no organisation. Um, and so I, I think I am similar to you, Adrian, in that I often advise against um, best practice frameworks because they don't tend to flex and adapt well. Um, it's really hard to tailor them in a meaningful way. Um, you can only tend to tailor them meaningfully if you already are an expert, if you already know it. But if you're new to something and you see a million and one templates or a million and one checklists or a million and one, like, you know, even if it's a bouncing ball style setup, it encourages either A, laziness in terms of just follow the bouncing ball and you're not actually thinking about the problem you're trying to solve, or B, overwhelm. Mm -hmm. And if you're feeling overwhelmed, you go, screw it, I'm just going to stick to what I know and there's no growth, there's no opportunity, and you're usually missing out on substantial value. Um, and so the best path to behavior change is through empathy and capability. And so the frameworks and the pedagogy or and templates or anything like that, they should be reinforcements. They should be tools. Um, the same, you know, it basically the same way a hammer doesn't tell you where to nail these templates, these pedagogy, these, these frameworks, they shouldn't tell you how to solve the problem. They should help you think about how to solve the problem. Uh, and and that's where the value is here. It's in that capability. It's in that. It's in that growth. And it's in the people. Yeah, something that stands out to me, which listeners might agree with as they're following on, is the frustration experienced by teaching staff these days. Although it's so much easier to have a lesson plan or a you know a scope and sequence for a term's worth work put in front of you because it saves you time. There's no ability to be innovative and creative. And it's really important for us in schools to be able to uh, provide and scaffold the time and the collaboration resources for our staff to be able to work together and execute that, that you know, that element of autonomy around what they teach. Um, it, you know, we can't do that without the time. So that's why that's super important. But yeah, that's why I think you know, things get a little bit stale, even from a curriculum standpoint too. All right. So how do we do this? You know, um, you know, how do we do that? How do we rally our people uh, for momentum and do it well? Yeah. So um, there, when we're talking momentum, uh, it's very, we're, we're very much talking culture at the same time. And, and so I've got a model here that I, I tend to talk about and I tend to teach. Um, and I call it the momentum path, but I'm playing with the idea of calling it the culture path in, in all honesty, mm. because essentially what it is, it's a, it's a really interesting way of thinking about where your team culture is or where your, the culture is around your change or where you know, whichever group of people, however you want to slice and dice it, um, it's a really interesting, interesting way of thinking about a segment of people and analysing where they are in terms of culture um, and in terms of forward momentum. And so essentially 
it's the collision of two elements, hope and energy. Now, hope is the is an optimism for the work you're doing and your place in it. So two elements to it, you know, optimism, like I like the word work, I believe in the work. I mean, especially, uh, I mean, in this context we're talking about, I mean, teaching is very much a, a purposeful type work, right? Um, and so that hope component is very important in terms of I've, I'm optimistic about the work and I understand my place in it. Yeah. Uh, and then the second element we want to be monitoring here is energy and that's enthusiasm and excitement. And so that's that's closer to how I would describe my three-year-old, uh, you know, this, this, you know, jumping off things and bouncing around the room. I mean, we're not expecting staff to jump off things and bounce around the room, but it's still that how enthusiastic and excited are they in terms of the problems that they're solving uh, and, and how they're turning up every day. And so the collision between the two, or really, uh, if you could think about it as an X, Y axis, um, where if you put hope on the Y and you put energy on the X, so hope heading up vertical and energy heading horizontal, um, the the dynamics between them tends to inform what kind of forward momentum, what kind of culture you currently have. Mm -hmm. And so what's really interesting here is the pattern between them or the relationship between the two isn't linear in that it doesn't go up in a straight 45-degree line. You can't just you know go to the corner and go straight up. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. That's not the relationship. What tends to happen is it actually shifts heavily towards hope first and then dramatically towards energy. So, so it's a curve that, uh, I guess, reverse exponential kind of. Um, it kind of shifts heavily up and then, you know, head, heads heavily vertical, then head, heads heavily horizontal. Um, and that's why you can't use traditional motivational techniques, you know, management techniques, um, for people that want to leave. The people that don't believe in what you're doing, they don't give a damn if you empower them and, um, you know, and do whatever else you want to do in that space. They, they're done. They don't care. They don't believe in the work, right? And so you've got to build the hope first and then work on building the energy. And so there's, that's an interesting lens. But then you can start to think about it more and you go, okay, well, what does extremely low hope and extremely low energy look like and i tend to term that people in the pits of despair those are people who um, are stuck they don't want to be there they don't want to do the work they are not bought in in any way or form they want to leave but they don't know how and so they feel stuck yeah. because if they knew how they would have already left that's the pits of despair and then we could look at the complete other opposite end the highest possible hope and the highest possible energy. And these are people that are fanatic. And, I mean, and this is a really interesting area of the world to look at because it's, it's above motivated. So, I mean, the way to think about these people are these are people that care so much about what they do that they will go above and beyond. And, I mean, taking this out of the workplace, a way to think about fanatics are um, the people that line up for midnight releases of video games or Harry Potter novels, you know, and dress up as their favorite Harry Potter character or the people that camp out two days in advance to get the latest Apple iPhone or the people that go on to, to community forums and complain about or heavily promote the latest Starbucks drink, right? Like this is levels of fanaticism. That's fanatic level. And 
when you're driving change, fanaticism is really, really useful because it tends to um, it tends to create passive marketing, mm-hmm. and that's very, very useful when you're driving change because mm-hmm. if you're you're trying to get people to do things differently. Uh, it's one thing for you to say it. It's another thing for their peer to say it. And it's another thing for their peer to say, hey, this is really exciting. I love this. I'm bought in. This has been really positive effect on me. I mean, that comes with so much more social proof than you could ever do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see it a lot when I go and work with schools. You've obviously got a, a group. It depends on the school, obviously, the percentage of a school staff that are sitting kind of down at this despair um, phase, but there are the fanatics who are so into well-being and culture building, and I see it in the feedback forms that they they put through. And these are the best people to utilize for your well-being action team um, and for your school culture board, those kind of things. Because of, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a minute, because that they really are your champions for change. Um, but yeah, it's it's important again coming back to that idea of diagnosing where your staff are at, because if you have a large majority who are in despair you have to of course recognize then that your approach to change is going to is going to need to adjust and shift then if you have you know lots kind of sitting in the middle or or a lot of fanatics um how do you what you know what are some strategies you've got for for moving people out of despair and along that momentum path yeah so um so i I tend to think of it almost like it's almost a recipe and Mm. Um, I mean, it's very much not a recipe, but there are different tools and different approaches at different stages is um, is the way to think about it. So if someone's in despair, then they don't give a damn what you're doing mm. generally. Mm. Mm. And so what your entire goal is as a leader, if you're trying to move someone out of despair or a group of people out of despair, is you need to plant a seed of hope. Yeah. Because you don't, you, you need to not worry about anything in energy related at all. You're looking to increase hope, mm. and so you tend to do that by creating a physical change of some sort. Now, whether that's a physical locational change, whether that's a team change, whether it's a reporting line, whether it's a role title, like it has to be something physically different for them. Yes. Um, And what that does is it plants the seed. It doesn't hatch the seed. It doesn't water the seed. It doesn't do anything else. But it plants a seed of hope as in, oh, maybe this could be different. It probably won't be. And I'm highly, highly cynical and I just want to leave. But maybe it could be. Yeah. And that's the seed, right? And so then once you've got that seed, I tend to then think about it in they, they move up to the next level. And the next level is fearful. And so these are people that are, hesitant to take on any amount of risk at all. They are doing exactly what is needed of them and no more. Um, They are not, from the outside looking in, they don't look that different from people in despair other than the people in despair probably have higher absenteeism rates and higher sick leave rates uh, because they just don't want to be there and they're using them all up. But from a work point of view, people that are are fearful look almost exactly the same. They're not putting their hands up for things. They're not enthusiastic. They're not driving it because they're held back by the fear. And there's a bunch of different fears that could be a play here. And and we don't have time to go through all of them, Mm. but it's things like tall poppy, but it's also things like fear of embarrassment. It's also there's a number of dynamics in there. But ultimately the way you start to attack fear is you need to then look at, well, what's the group dynamic? Mm. And how do we as a group 
deal with success and failure. Yeah. And that's ultimately your goal here is you want to be normalizing success and you want to be normalizing failure. And so that starts to heavily attack a lot of these fears where people start to go, okay, it's quite okay to succeed. And okay, it's quite okay to fail here. And we celebrate both because what we're looking for is uh, forward movement, forward mm-hmm. outcome. And when you're building that, I mean, people also talk about psychological safety. I mean, that's this element that comes into play at this point in the momentum path. It's building that sense of, yeah, I'm okay here. This is okay. Mm-hmm. And have support they, mechanisms in place. Yeah. That's exactly it. Support yeah. mechanisms, but also team rituals that reinforce it. Mm. Um, you know, things like learning practices, which we've already talked about, are really, really helpful here because when you ask someone for the story of their last two weeks, you're not expecting it to be all good. Mm. There's going to be some crap things in there. There's going to be some mm. bad things in there. And when you treat them equally, people go, oh, that's just the journey. That's just part of this. And we're learning from both and we're treating both equally. Um, but, but you're right. Um, then we move up to hopeful. Now, the group that's in hopeful, um, there that tends to be where most new starters will start. You know, they're not bored either way. It's kind of your midway between hope and energy, and this is where we start to now heavily inflect towards building energy. And so this is the group that um, your more typical motivational techniques tend to work really well with. When someone's hopeful, they go, yes, things I'm excited, things could be better, or I'm excited about the kind of work we're doing. Um, there's also another way to think about this group, and that's the um, people that are comfortable. Uh, so these are people that have been doing it for 20 years um, and just see themselves as an old hand and just going through the motions. They're not fearful, they're, they're quite competent, they're quite comfortable, quite happy, but they're not going above and beyond. So hopeful and comfortable is this mid-range area. And so what you're looking at there is um, I really like Dan Pink's work in terms of motivation. And so that's giving this group a challenge, empowering them to do it, and then giving them a really clear sense of purpose and contribution Mm. and helping them build upwards. Yeah, a thing that stands out to me about those in the hopeful phase is that when I start my initial work around wellbeing, so we run a school survey, I come in and I you know, gain consultation from staff and share back data, is that you see a lot of staff getting really hopeful then. And it's so important here that we recognise that and leverage that. And I know you'll move into the next phase in a minute. Um, but it's so important that we keep going with that momentum because that initial spark in the energy, and I'm thinking how you were talking about that with the X, Y would be shooting right up. Mm -hmm. So how do we access that energy then so that they don't come crashing right back down? Yeah. 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 And and I mean, and change is the kind of thing where, um, it's hard, it's painful, uh, and you're going to be dealing with a whole heap of resistance. And so there is this downward pull on the momentum path at all times when you're leading change, when you're driving change. Like it's always pulling downwards. And so you want to be actively looking for ways to move forward. Sorry. Yeah, and I love that idea of knowing where your staff are sitting on the momentum path and that probably helps you to not take it so personally. Um, And I've recognised that too when I come into schools is that there are people who are in despair. So they're not going to be jumping around the room that someone's surveying them on their wellbeing. Um, But the ones in hopeful will, they'll be like, yeah, sure. You know, I'll provide a really nice, honest answer that's constructive. 
Um, and instead of taking that personally, some of those responses that are short or, you know, what I perceive as quite negative, it's just about that awareness of where they're at and what's the next step that they need. And we do that for kids. We don't expect them to go from knowing nothing <laughs> or being not motivated by learning at all to the next day, right on board, hand up at the front of the class. So we can't expect that of our staff too. So I love how these steps kind of give you the you know, the next action or focus along the journey. All right. So we've gone from hopeful. What what comes mm-hmm. next? The next one is motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people often go, well, how do I motivate my staff? Um, but, and that that's essentially, you know, challenge, empowerment, contribution, it's, it's getting them motivated. Um, but the, the bigger question people should be asking is, well, how do I beat it? How do I build a team of fanatics? How do I, and I mean, if you don't like the term fanatic, come up with something else that's beyond motivated. I've tried several terms in that place. Um, but frankly, what is beyond motivated? And that's these people that are really excited and bought in so completely and um, they see it as part of their identity. And so the way you build that group is through two key elements. It's building a sense of belonging, so giving them something to belong to. Uh, and you can use, you know, you can use community groups, you can use labeling, you can use a bunch of things in that space, but essentially it's giving them a sense of belonging and then you need to then give them something to talk about. Mm-hmm. So you, when you want to be creating positive disruption. You need to shake things up in a positive way so that they have something to talk about. And the end goal with positive disruption being that they are talking about, hey, this is, you know, my school does this. Um, and then they're, not tell, they're not telling anyone at school about it. They're telling their partner about it at home or they're telling their friends over the weekend barbecue because they're so excited because it's Mm -hmm. so different and because it's frankly interesting social capital for them to use in these conversations because it's so interesting it's so different it's so disruptive yeah what and you know this is teacher talk and school talk here but we um and across a lot of states utilize something called professional learning communities and it's about how you know we're all work together towards common goals uh, learning goals for our students but it's also taking again that inquiry approach or even an action research approach to like what you said what are we investigating what are we diving into what questions are we posing but those kind of scaffolds um, do just that they provide the supports for our staff to be able to collaborate around solving a problem uh, and and coming up with something innovative themselves yeah absolutely mm. and then finding ways or giving them the fodder uh, to use that externally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's very much, that goes, that goes a long way towards <laughs> achieving buy-in, right? Becoming the sage, you know, they're that's talking exactly about it. their learning. That's absolutely right. Yeah, and then they're the ones selling that, um, you know, they are recommending their school as a great place to work to others. And, yeah. and, and there's nothing more positive for a school than talks around growth like you don't have to be the best performing school you know I worked in um Canberra school I worked in Charnwood and we certainly weren't the best performing school but by god we had amazing growth and you know to go from a school with a really tricky reputation to being one that's highly sought after with an amazing community where teachers hum about it um you know that's what ultimately we're looking for yeah 100% agreed yeah have you finished up with your momentum path there? I think we've covered off on all of the all of the we stages. Have. Yeah, and what I'll we, do is I'll have. link it. I'll link a um an image if that's okay of that momentum path so people can see the visual because that was really great support um, of that when I was reading through the book. So I love that one. I'll have to put it on my social media as well. 
Cool. <laughs> All right, Brendan. So we see a number of quotes circulating on social media showcasing something really thought-provoking or inspiring from thought leaders across the globe and throughout time. If a quote, and they already are, but if your favourite one was circulating on the topic of health, well-being, or leadership, what would it say? Yeah, I mean that's such a tricky question, um, and, and I love it. So I came, I came up with two. I couldn't get down to one. I came up with two. So you, you, your, your listeners can decide which they like more. Um, the, the first is, uh, and this is something I advise a number of people on: is there's always something more to do, and so the art is in choosing what to say no to. Yeah, I like that, especially in education. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then the other one is, if you only focus on what matters, then you'll save a ton of time. Yeah, I like that. And that comes back to those initial questions. What really matters here? What are we aiming to do? Oh, and this podcast is aptly titled Well-Led Schools, which is a play on words to reflect those schools who lead with well-being in mind. What is one thing you think that schools or school leaders can do to prioritise well-being that would make the biggest difference in their school? Yeah, and I mean, so I... I know this is a challenging question because, as I said earlier, my mum was, was an AP, um, my wife is an ex-teacher, so I am fairly well acquainted with it, not having lived and breathed it, but having lived and breathed the households around it. Um, and so I know the pressure fairly well. I know the long hours better than anyone that doesn't, you know, understand teaching. Um, so my advice in this space would be to say no more um, and do so by getting really clear on what priorities matter. Um, draw boundaries around the priorities that matter and go, look, this is it. This is what this means. And then say no to anything that doesn't fit within those priorities. Mm -hmm. And leaders can do that too for their staff and on behalf of their staff. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, Brennan. It's been amazing. Where can the listeners find you in the online world in case they're looking to connect and, and engage with your amazing books and resources? Yeah, so I'm at um, VableChange.com, but I'm also on LinkedIn. So just search Brendan Baker um, or Vable Change on there. You'll you'll find me um, or go th- through to Adrian and I'm sure, you know, well, uh, there'll be links and stuff attached to this yeah. as well. But um, so I'm there. Uh, my books are, um, they are any anywhere you want to buy them is the short answer to that one. <laughs> any, any format you want to buy them, um, audiobook, paperback, hardcover, ebook. Um, it's all there. It's on Amazon. It's in Booktopia. It's a Booko. It's a, a seller in Canada. Like they're they're everywhere, right? So however you want to buy them, however you want to ingest them, they should be there. Um, did you change. did you record your audiobook yourself? I did not, but no. I will record my next one. Um, yeah. I, I I got a really fantastic person over in Perth to do it. Yeah. Uh, he did an f- amazing job. Um, but it's the funny thing happens when you write a book, and that's. The moment you publish it, uh, you get a whole heap of ideas that are brand new, which is really nice. Um, but then you look at the book and you go, oh, I wish I had these <laughs> brand new ideas in that book. Um, so there'll be a second edition at some stage and, and I'll read that one, I think. Yeah. Well, the saying goes, the more you learn, the less you feel like you know. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do the same thing, you know, reading through your book, I was like, oh God, <laughs> you know, I'm such a novice. I'm such an amateur, but we can all learn from each other. <laughs> That's exactly it. 
Yeah. yeah. Yep, Thank you so much for your time today. This has been such a great chat. Um, I really look forward, hopefully, to chatting another time again because this was such a great conversation that I'm sure many leaders right across the country and probably internationally um, will really love. So thank you again for your time. Thank you for having me on. Thanks so much, Brendan. Thanks so much for listening to Well-Led Schools. I look forward to connecting with you at adrianhornby.com.au. Here you can get in contact with me, learn more about my approach and join my mailing list. I'm Adrienne Hornby. Thanks again for your time and stay well.